Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. My guest this week is a man who lived a previous life as a Navy SEAL, and now he's a very successful book author. Hopefully today you can learn something new about Jack Carr. That's coming up. But first, let's talk about one of my absolute favorite founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. He was the jack of all trades and the master of many he was a statesman, a diplomat, a farmer, an inventor, and more famously, Thomas Jefferson was the author of our first founding document, the Declaration of Independence. Under his leadership as President of the United States, he won the first war on terror on the shores of Tripoli. America also doubled in size during Jefferson's presidency with the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson's Corps of Discovery, led by Lewis and Clark, unlocked many mysteries of the frontier and unleashed a century of westward expansion. In honor of his most famous accomplishment, American Pride Roasters Coffee is highlighting the Jefferson blend this month. The Jefferson is a medium roasted blend of beans from South America, has just a hint of vanilla from real vanilla beans mixed in. It's kind of a small declaration of independence of its own. I hope you're going to give this blend a try and so many other great choices over at aprcoffee.com. And when you do, you go to the checkout area and look, you type in offer code ATM in the special instructions category. That's offer code ATM. T-M, those three letters, stands for at the mic, going to save you 10% off of your order. Head over right now, aprcoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Jack Carr is an honorable and intriguing American who loves his country. With service as a Navy SEAL and now as a successful book author, Jack sat down with me to discuss his life, the transition to writing, and why the American form of government still matters. Thanks for making time, man. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I always I love talking about books, love talking about reading, uh, and uh, let's do it. I'm fired up. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate that. I want to tell you, I was not familiar with the James Reese series until the release of this fourth book in it. I think that this is a book series that my son and I would actually like reading together. My son is 15. He's a firearms expert, truly is. Uh, I, I just wonder, do you think the devil's hand in the books in this series, are they age appropriate for a teenage boy such as my son? I want to ask you that right out of the gate. Yeah, no, I think that's about the, the right age. Of course, every, every child is different. Growing up, my mom was a librarian. She still is. So I grew up with this love of reading, surrounded by books. And I started reading the same books my parents were reading in about fifth grade. So that's when Hunt for Red October came out. I already knew that I wanted to be a SEAL. I was already doing that whatever research I possibly could back in the early 80s about SEALs and Army Special Forces and CIA operatives in Vietnam and Marine sniper and that sort of thing. Uh, so I just knew I was on that path. And then when I was introduced, not just introduced, because I was always looking up at the shelves in our house, the shelves in our in our cabin, and looking at uh, these books that my parents had been had read. And uh, I really wanted to reach up there and take some of those off, but I wasn't quite ready yet. But in fifth grade, that's when Hunt for Red October came out by Tom Clancy. So I started reading that. I discovered David Morrell, who of course gave us the character Rambo with the publication of First Blood back in 1972, discovered his 
his Brotherhood of the Rose, Fraternity of the Stone, League of Night and Fog. Uh, <laughs> was reading A.J. Quinnell, uh, Nelson DeMille, J.C. Pollock, Mark Olden, Stephen Hunter. Uh, all these guys who were really giving me an education in the art of storytelling. So, uh, so I eased into those kind of books, I think, throughout fifth grade. But then by sixth grade, for sure, I was reading those kind of books. Um, and that was right the right age for me. So that's, uh, what are you in sixth grade? Okay. You're, you're 11. Um, so, and, and I've never stopped. So I was always reading these kind of thrillers. I was always studying warfare, terrorism, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies. But today with my kids, I have that same problem because I read to these kids from the second they got home from the hospital after being born. And I read to them <laughs> up until that point where they were like, uh, dad, you know, I'm, I'm too old to have you reading to me. Um, but there's so many other distractions these days. Like growing up, you know, no kidding. there was, uh, you could read a book. Uh, you could wait for your television show to come on like uh, at eight or nine at night. Um, you could ride your bike to the video store to hope that there was a, a VHS tape there uh, that, uh, that that you're looking for. Uh, or you could play outside. You could play Atari 2600, but you can only do that for, uh, you know, you couldn't play that for hours on end. You, you, you can only do that for a certain amount of time. Um, so yeah. point being, there are so many more distractions for kids these days. So it's so tough as a parent trying to naturally encourage them to read, not force them, but just make it a part of their life. And I think that these kids growing up today with all these digital distractions are going to be audiobook listeners um, because they it just seems that's the fastest growing segment of publishing. And it seems like these kids, it's a natural thing for these kids to do when there's all these distractions. I would prefer that they have a physical book, but uh, but I think the, right. the audiobooks might be the way to, that introduces kids to reading these days. I heard someone recently say, you know, when you and I were growing up, I think you and I are pretty pretty similar in age. I'm 45. Nice. I got and, you by a couple years, but uh, yeah, okay. close. So someone said this so perfectly. The question was, would you rather grow up in the 80s and 90s like we did, or would you rather be growing up today? And let's just take COVID and the pandemic and lockdowns and set that aside for a moment. We land on the 80s and 90s because even though the technology was different and we didn't have the on-demand stuff and like you said it was appointment viewing you had to sit down at a certain time and watch tv you had to sit there and check the return bin at blockbuster um you think of the social pressures where you would come home from school and you could get away from the world for the next 12 hours until you had to go back into the hostile environment of school and social life and stuff like that. Now there's social media. And even when you're on vacation, kids don't get a break from that stuff. And so it's a completely different experience having a childhood then and having a childhood now. And I would like to also say kudos to you for reminding people books are a thing. You don't have to have a digital reader. You don't have to listen to it. Now, those are great. And, and because we have such little time, those are practical. But man, there's nothing like holding a book. You know what? Exactly. I loved, I still have the books that I read growing up. All those ones I just talked about, all those authors, I still have those original books that I read back in the 80s and 90s. And now I've started to supplement them with uh, hardcover first editions by those same authors because I have such great memories uh, reading those books. But I think you're right. It is so tough today for kids. And I see it with my kids. We have a 15-year-old, 13-year-old, and 10-year-old. But yeah, when they come home from school, they're still connected to those same social pressures that they had while they were physically there. There is no break for them those kids uh, and you try to do your best as a parent but uh, you know these devices are they're, they're the way you communicate with them they're the way that they socialize particularly during COVID that became uh, even more uh, relevant right. and prevalent um, during the last year as they were locked down from going to school so it's such a hard thing for parents to deal with it is such a hard thing for these kids 
to deal with each and every day. So, um, and I don't have a good answer for it other mm-hmm. than what we try to do as a family is uh, try to get to some places uh, a couple times a year where there is no cell signal, where there is no Wi-Fi. So we typically yeah. go into a river canyon and get on a river for for a week, or we get out hunting somewhere um, where it's uh, it's at least harder to find a signal in the backcountry, and you're not constantly <laughs> checking this phone. And so, you know, you really have to take a and make a concerted effort to get away from these things, particularly with your family. So it's a yeah. tough thing to deal with today. And yeah, I, my, my wife and I think back to the 80s all the time. And, uh, you know, what a great time to grow up. I just, I wish, I wish that hot tub time machine thing from that movie was a real deal, because uh, I'd be in it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and before we go any further, if people want to check out the four books in the James Reese series, really just go to I love how it's laid out. If you just go to jackcar.com, it's, well, it's official official jackcar.com. I think there's an insurance salesman or a car salesman in the Midwest that had jackcar.com. So, uh, I'm so have, glad you I'm, said that. Yes. <laughs> so I'm officialjackcar.com and yeah, people yes. can go deep dive into some of the weapons or some of my reading suggestions on there. I do a reading list every month uh, for people they can choose, you know, so maybe one of those books resonates with them. Uh, talk about kind of where I was when I read it, how it influenced me as either an author or a combat leader. Uh, so that's all all up there for people that want to go a little deeper. Very good. And Let's have you discuss the exciting news, how Chris Pratt is creating a, it's an eight-part series, correct, that's, that's going right. to be on Amazon Prime? That is how right. Cool They're filming it right now, and I got back from set about a week ago, and it was incredible to see that there's 350 people on set in LA making this happen, and it was like a military operation. There was, you know, in the military we have these <laughs> logistics chains because you have to feed the army, you know. So, craft uh, food services is there. You have your your weapons guy there that's uh, taking the weapons back from the actors, and logging them in, taking make, making sure that everyone's accountable for their uh, night vision and their radios and all this equipment, their <laughs> knives and all this sort of thing. Uh, and for each weapon, there's like four of them. There's one that, you know, there's one that fires blanks, uh, one that's just a, a shape. So it's just a, uh, a mold, essentially, that looks like a, like a gun. So there's all these different ones. Uh, then there's the transportation guy. Same thing in the military. We have someone that handles mobility. And uh, same thing on set. Someone's in charge of all those vehicles. Uh, in the SEAL platoon, there's somebody in charge that's a, a breacher, that's an explosives expert. Guess what? On set, there's that same person that's dealing with all the explosives and all that sort of thing. And then you have Antoine Fuqua, director, incredible guy did training day tears of the sun magnificent seven equalizer uh, he's like the commanding officer on there he's the director commanding officer guy and then there's chris who optioned this thing out of the gate before my first book had even hit shelves and he's like the platoon commander or the task unit commander which he's actually playing in that first episode uh so he's kind of you know he's setting the tone for everybody at that tactical level and uh it was just such a cool thing to see and totally surreal and there's like 12 guys uh, that i served with in the seal teams on set either doing stunt coordination technical advising or acting uh, in this thing. So we had a huge reunion on set. It was, a, it was amazing. What is so cool about you is it seems like from your youngest days, you were on a path where you were not only getting a love of the Navy SEAL life ingrained in you, but at the same time, a love for reading. And I just love how you have been able to pull off both careers very successfully. So congratulations to you for efficiency. Um, you spent time as a waiter. Okay. <laughs> Where'd you find school? that one? I did, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Look so at that. Nice. Time time deep. A, wait. Yeah, well, 
I mean, I could I could just uh, toot my own horn here. However, uh, you did write that in the email when I asked you what kind of jobs you had. So oh, that's right. That's right. Credit. That, so, that was the first uh, time I ever mentioned that, I think. Oh, that's so cool. So here's what I was going to ask you, okay? Because I know that they're all different in their own right. And, and it is not to belittle one or the other. I, I respect all of these answers here. I got to know, which was more difficult? Being a Navy SEAL, uh, being an author, and making deadlines and all that stuff, or... It could be being a waiter. I don't know. You tell us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, luckily you're not really thinking about uh, all those things as you're uh, as you're waiting tables back in uh, in high school. So you're just kind of kind of doing it to get a little gas money. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of fun. You know, I value that experience for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody should uh, should have a job you know like that in was, uh, in service. Was there ever industry. a memorable moment when you were a server where like you? you know, dumped a bowl of soup on a customer or something like that, that that sticks with you to this day? No, but I do remember thinking that I was way too young to be serving alcohol. Um, but <laughs> but I, I remember thinking like, is this even legal? Like I have access to all this beer and wine and I'm uh, I'm serving it, but I'm like 15 or whatever I was. Uh, so so I, mean, I don't know if you could do that today. I'm not sure if you're allowed to serve. I don't know. Who knows what the laws are? No idea. Yeah. But uh, no, it was a valuable experience. And um, But even then, you know, I knew the, the path that I was on. And I think that all started, uh, it was just a calling. So really, you know, I listened yeah. to the two callings that I had in life. And one was to serve my country in uniform and the other was to write thrillers. And I didn't really think about how closely those would be intertwined, uh, especially back when I was seven years old, when I decided I wanted to be a SEAL. Um, but, so cool. I, but I knew that that was where I was going. There was never a, a question about that. And a lot of that I think comes from, well, I think a lot of it's innate. I think you're just born with some of these things. But at the same time, um, I grew up around uh, these medals that my grandfather got from World War II. He was killed off the off Okinawa in 1945. But uh, mm-hmm. I grew up with pictures of him and his squadron. I grew up with um, the, his marine aviator wings, uh, that sort of thing. The silk maps they used to give aviators back then, because if you had a paper map when you hit the water, it would disintegrate. So they had silk maps for the aviators. Um, That's so, cool. Uh, so I had all that stuff, and uh, so it was just I just knew that that was the path I was on. And then also back then there was a a series on TV called Black Sheep Squadron. I think it was called Baba Black Sheep when it initially came out, but then in syndication in the early '80s it was called Black Sheep Squadron with Robert Conrad playing Pappy Boynton, who was a Marine fighter pilot in World War II. Uh, so I watched those with my dad, and that was our connection to him because my dad had never met his father either. He uh, his father was killed when uh, before he was well. It was in at war while my dad was born, so uh, they never wow. met each other. So, uh, so I just knew I was on on this path, and I started researching seals so early because my mom was a librarian. So we we had uh, you know access to libraries and bookstores, and uh, the importance of research and reading and all these things. So it was very natural for me to just start studying these things early on and uh, identified what seals were. And then there was a video that the Navy produced back in 1968 or 69 called "Men with Green Faces." And it showed part of SEAL training and showed these guys, you know, doing things that, like climbing ropes and cargo nets and that sort of thing. So I uh, I did that in my backyard the best I could, you know, put a rope up in a tree or had a jungle gym back there. So I was doing pull-ups with, you know, different hand positions that I could see what the guys were doing on these on these videos, this old video. And then there was a couple other videos that came out in the early 80s and early 90s. So I was doing this the whole time. I was always figuring out, hey, what can I do now that'll better prepare me uh, to serve my country in uniform later? So I was doing, you know, hill sprints and pull-ups, climbing on the roof, shooting my bow down at angles, you know, doing all sorts of stuff like that. CrossFit before CrossFit, I guess. Um, And (laughs) uh, just wanted to prepare myself. But part of that preparation was study. 
was studying warfare and terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies, and that continues today. So uh, I felt feel very fortunate that I had this foundation upon which to build as I got out of the military. I had that all those books that I read, got those that early education in the art of storytelling from some of the masters of the craft just by reading them and enjoying them growing up, and then that academic study of warfare, and then the experience on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan, and all that kind of came together and is woven into the woven into all the novels. As someone who could never be a SEAL, and as someone who has wanted to be an author, throughout my life I have had stories in my head, screenplays, you know, TV show ideas, movies, anything bouncing around in my head, but never really took the time. Well, I shouldn't say that. I did for a little while try, and and just I I couldn't keep doing it. it was it's so difficult. What was more stressful for you? being a seal or being an author because it seems like you were a natural for both am i wrong yeah i mean i listened to the calling and uh just took steps growing up uh and continue to stay take steps today that that uh that make me better um well one yeah. to be prepared to take care of my family and the other you know obviously uh, to write these these novels um so i guess you know harder that's a it's it, you know, very different, but also very similar, um, both both professions. And I think there's definitely a difference between a career and a profession. And there's a reason that it's called the profession of arms and not the career of arms. So I look at both of these things, uh, my time in the military and um, what I'm doing now as an author as professions. Um, gotcha. and, and both of them, both of them take work. But the yeah. consequences of messing up uh, as an author uh, are a lot less dire than they were in the SEAL teams. Uh, That's so a I, good point. Yeah. So I really never thought of it as uh you know as stressful when i was in the seal teams it was just uh it was just what i was you know what i was doing what i was born to do um and so i never really thought of it as hey this is stressful this is hard i mean that's why you're there um to operate in a in a high stress environment um and uh and do the do the job to the best of your your ability so when you're in the seal teams that that uh, pendulum is on the side of the team. Like it's, uh, you know, it's not on the side of the family, and uh, and the family has to know that. You got to talk about it because once again, that's what you owe the guys that you're taking downrange to be. Um, that's what you owe them and their families to have every single thing that you do uh, make you a better operator, make you a better combat leader. Um, so that's on that side of the house. And what you're really doing in warfare um, when the bullets are flying is you're aggressively solving problems uh, the enemy's mm. always adapting to you you're always adapting to the enemy you're looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses looking to capitalize on momentum uh, it's a very dynamic environment now in writing it's the same thing that I'm doing on the written page uh, particularly in these political thrillers I'm solving problems I'm aggressively solving problems uh, I'm, I'm adapting as I write um, and that's it but also but the point being I can go to sleep and wake up the next day and edit. Uh, so if I mess up on the written page, like <laughs> no. it's okay. It's not. You know, it's not the end of the world. No one's coming home in a body bag. Uh, That's and a then great point. Same thing on the business side of the house, which uh, which I didn't really anticipate as I started down this path. I thought you just could go to the mountains and write a book in a cabin and send it to New York and start your next one. I had no idea really that you started. You had to do everything that you would do for any other business as an author in order to build that readership. So uh, budget and marketing and advertising and social media and engagement, sure. all the things you have to do to build a client base in any other business is the, are the same things that you need to do to build a readership in publishing. Uh, and there are ways to do that these days that authors couldn't take advantage of in 1975, 85, 95, even 2005. You know, things have, things have morphed uh, and you have to adapt to that battle space as well. But once again, 
if I make a mistake on the business side of the house, no one's coming home in a body bag. So yeah. Uh, so I would say uh, I didn't. Although I didn't look at it this way, uh, as far as you know, stress levels. I just looked at it as you know, this is where you want to be in this dynamic environment, and this is what you've been training for, and uh, and this is what you've been preparing for, and you owe the guys uh, that every single second of your life is spent uh, trying to make yourself a better operator and leader. Well, you know, now you can take a little bit of a breath, but you're still working hard. You're still putting in that work each and every day, both on the business side and the writing front. So, um, so definitely different battle spaces, uh, but I don't look at the, either of them in terms of stress levels. Sure. You said that you knew from age seven that you wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Was there any moment, say during Hell Week, that you even had a nanosecond of a thought of, I'm going to go ring that bell? Did that ever cross your mind once as even a possibility? Uh, how, just take an average club like me through this as much as you're able to. I just can't even imagine what that is like. Um, the intensity of that. How, how was that experience itself? So I never thought of it in terms of, gosh, I, I want to quit right now. I'm so I'm close to quitting. You know, I, I never thought of it in terms in those terms. You know, you do think of it because they make it very easy to ring that bell and you ring it three times and you're out. And for most of buds, that bell is in front of the first phase office. So no matter where you are on base or in training, you have to make your way to that bell to ring it. Well, during Hell Week, when you're up from Sunday morning to Friday afternoon and you're on the verge of hypothermia the whole time and you're moving the whole time, um, we put that bell in a trailer hitch on a truck that is within sight of you for the entire week. So we make wow. it very easy to self-select out of this program. Um, but for me, you know, people would quit that first night of Hell Week. People just quit in droves. And uh, we'd be in the surf zone, everybody's shivering on the verge of hypothermia, and and people would start quitting. And remember, the, the class would, you know, they'd yell, hey, come back, don't quit. Uh, someone would go up to that truck to ring that bell. And I was always like, mm-mm. That's, <laughs> I'm not saying anything because that is the program working. That's why I'm here. Uh, 80% yeah. attrition. Uh, that was the draw, part of the draw during that research I did back in the early 80s. Like, that's why I am here. Not everyone is going to make it through this program. And that's what, that, that's what this is all about. So you think of quitting in terms of, oh, geez, if I quit right now, I would be warm um, and I would have a donut. And, uh, and the, so you think, of it, I guess I thought of it in those terms, but not necessarily like, oh, I'm close to ringing that bell. That was never even an option. One, because I've been telling everybody I was going to be a SEAL since I was seven. Uh, and two, you know, I put it in perspective. Um, I, all that academic study of warfare that I did, I looked back on that and thought, you know what I'm not doing right now? I am not in a landing craft about to have that uh, that door drop and run across a beach uh, in World War II, either you know Normandy or Iwo Jima or whatever it might be, and uh, run uh, towards a cliff with no cover, no concealment, taking fire from a machine gun in an elevated position. Uh, you know what? I'm not doing that. And you know who did do that? Are uh, are this generation that gave me the options and opportunities I have today? They gave me the freedom to be here on this beach, doing these push-ups, doing these sit-ups, running, carrying these boats and logs. Uh, and you know what? I, I, they gave me that freedom, and uh, I can do this. I can do another pull-up. I can do another push-up. I can climb this mm -hmm. rope. So I put it in perspective, and that really, uh, I think, well, make, putting it in relative terms um, really helped me, um, and continues to help me today as I go through life. Yeah, well, on behalf of freedom-loving Americans, thank you for your service and all those in your family that came before you, because it sounds like uh, Jack Carr's family has 
done a heck of a lot for this nation. So thank you. Oh, appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think about those guys all the time, daily. I think about all those guys, that all those generations, especially now. Now when we're seeing things that used to bind us together as Americans, particularly the, the First Amendment, um, that used to be something that we could all rally around. Like growing up in the 80s, <laughs> I remember, hey, you, you know, you would stand up for someone's right to talk, so speak, especially if they disagreed with you. Like that was what made us Americans, standing up for people that we disagreed with, especially if we, we vehemently disagreed with them. Um, and now we're seeing, we're not seeing that anymore. We're seeing a lot of those traditional guardians of the First Amendment, people in, in publishing, in uh, you know newspapers, magazines, uh, lawyers, politicians, that, that first line of defense for the First Amendment are now actively calling for censorship for cancellation um and it's it's a new so this next 10 years is going to be extremely important particularly when it comes to that first amendment uh for the future yeah. of this nation as from the inception of this country up until today who sacrificed everything so that we could have these freedoms and uh for people not to spend the time doing the research, learning about the history, finding out, really thinking about why we have these amendments, why we have this constitution, um, and basing their opinions off someone else's one sentence or two sentence tweet who also has not put in the requisite time, energy, and effort that we should put in if we're making decisions that are gonna impact future generations. Um, that, so I think about all those people that sacrificed everything um, up to this point, and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's disheartening. So I think everybody yeah. owes it to them and to future generations, uh, both um, to put the time in and uh, to study before they form an opinion, and certainly before they uh, they retweet an opinion based on someone else's <laughs> uh, you know ill ill gotten conclusion. <laughs> oh boy, are you? Yeah, you're on Twitter. I'm sorry, at Jack Carr USA. That's at right, Jack Carr USA. If you would like to, yes, check him I'm, out over there. I am, I am most active on Instagram because as just one person, I have Instagram, Twitter, and uh, and Facebook. Uh, I think the Facebook just kind of reposts from Instagram, uh, so okay. most, I had to kind of choose one to focus on. So uh, as one person, that was Instagram. But I do, I am active on Twitter as well. But uh, for the most part, um, the main focus, and I try to get back to everybody, but it's becoming increasingly sure. more difficult. And I look at uh, social media as a way for me to thank people. Because because yeah. uh, authors couldn't have done that in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, and I can mm -hmm. today because people are taking a risk on me. And uh, and I and the only reason that I can continue to do what I love doing, which is writing, is because people took that risk and then told a friend. So I try to, at the end of the night, when I'm exhausted, I try to at least hit that heart button or say thank you <laughs> uh, because I do sincerely appreciate everybody's support. That's really great, man. I, I will say one of the questions I ask in the email is if you have any hobbies. And Jack's response was, I've never distinguished between hobbies and life in general. I think that's a great answer. But I just, because like I said, you're obviously very efficient in, right in life. So here's my question. Does Jack Carr ever have any downtime whatsoever? And if so, what do you do, man? <laughs> Not for the, a while here. Uh, it's been a full-on <laughs> sprint. I feel like it's been um, like a startup is how I look at it. Uh, a startup in a garage. And it, when you're doing that, you are taking advantage of every opportunity you possibly can because that's what you owe uh, the people who invested in you. So that's what I look at. Like Simon & Schuster gave me my shot. They invested in me. Uh, it's my responsibility to prove to them that I was a good investment. Um, and same thing with my family. They, they took a risk with me on this journey. So I owe them my 
my best effort and all my effort in order to build this out and uh, to build this readership. So I feel like I'd spent a full-on sprint. And for those who have started businesses uh, essentially in their garages, they'll know what I'm what I'm talking about. Um, but I think I'm at the point now where it's probably time to take a little bit of a, a breath uh, and put some more processes <laughs> in place that are uh, increase efficiencies. So I have like a, a merchandise line. And it was my you know my wife was taking care of all that. She's printing out labels, stuffing packages, you know, doing all this stuff. We couldn't even meet demand. So what we're doing now, it's time to put that to, to get that to a fulfillment center and uh, and offload a, a little bit of, of that. I have a, a podcast called Danger Close Beyond the Books with Jack Carr, and uh, I have that also. Uh, that is with Ironclad Media. So they do all everything except for record the episodes. That's all that I do, and then, then they take it from there. Um, because trying to figure out how to upload and passwords and platforms and I know that's it's important to know your limitations in life. So yeah, uh, that's certainly one of mine. So it's important to know your capabilities and limitations. Just like if you're carrying a pistol, <laughs> it's good to know your, yep. uh, both your capabilities and your limitations with that chosen weapon system. So, uh, so yep. I think this is the year to to uh, to get a little more organized uh, as far as uh, as the business side of the house goes. Yeah, there are only so many hours in a day. I have learned that lesson so much myself in the last few months. So I, I totally I can relate. Um, your favorite comfort food. It's one of my favorites. It had to be tacos. I just have to ask, crunchy or soft, Jack? <laughs> crunchy. Yeah, yeah. Crunchy. Okay. Make, make the All shells right. ourselves. So we, yeah, uh, yeah. Fry the <laughs> shells ourselves. And uh, yeah, I ref- refined it over the years. Usually it's uh, it's elk meat um, and those things and uh, oh. a little bit of some spices. And so, yeah, we're, we're, uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty good on the tacos so hang here. On. Okay, hang on a second. How, how does one go about making their own taco shells that seems like it's a process how much time does that take yeah it's it is a process so much easier to just buy them already done but it's not the same so i uh yeah you put uh uh some vegetable oil you can use other things too i think we've used like olive oil and some other things as well but uh, you just fry them up you just toss corn tortillas in uh in some hot oil and then you uh you mold them with a uh, uh you know some tongs and just mold them into the shape that you want and then you pull them out and drop it into a uh, drop it into a tray that has some uh <laughs> some uh paper towels to absorb that grease and toss another one in so <laughs> it's uh it is a process and it is a little bit messy but it's uh, yeah. it's so good okay all right all right um are you able to tell us about some of the celebrities that you've crossed paths with over the years I, obviously chris pratt uh anybody else uh, come to mind uh with an experience that you'd like to share with us Oh, uh, you know, I, I, what's really cool for me now is that those guys that I read growing up, those authors who inspired me both to um, to become an author and to and cemented my uh, my journey into the SEAL teams. I am friends with those guys now, uh, particularly David Morrell, created Rambo back in 1972. Uh, what an amazing guy. We talk about almost weekly. Uh, and Stephen Hunter, who has the uh, the Bob Lee Swagger series, a uh, Marine sniper from Vietnam. Um, cool. And uh, so those guys we talk weekly about, and they've been so generous with their time and uh, so kind. I started my, my second book tour with Stephen Hunter, um, which was a huge honor for me. So, um, and Stephen Pressfield, who wrote Gates of Fire, Legend of Bagger Vance, The Afghan Campaign. Um, hmm. He has a series of books on creativity. One's called The War of Art. The one's called Turning Pro, Do the Work, Authentic Swing, Warrior Ethos. Um, yeah, we talk uh, about once a week as well. And Joe, what an amazing guy. Uh, so it, so for me, it's such an honor to to know these guys and uh, to to be one in the in the same profession, but uh, but also to call them friends. That is so cool. Um, 
one of the questions I ask is what cheers you up? Your answer, I want you to know, I love this word, but I, I love it as an answer to what cheers you up is perspective. Now, the reason I fell in love with that word is a cousin of mine who used that word to describe how I viewed the world. I, we, he and I were having a, a conversation and we had just become parents. And so I was explaining to him just the life of being a new parent. And he just said, that's what we call perspective. Because now you see it from that other side. How did that word perspective come into play in answering that question? What cheers you up, may I ask? You know, you must have caught me on a good day um, because usually I think I would say, uh, you know, coffee in the morning and whiskey at night. Uh, that, that's, that's probably the more honest answer. But uh, no, perspective, I think, is important because you can get sucked in, especially today. It is There's so much connectivity and there is so many, there are so many ways for uh, different people, organizations, um, political parties to divide us. You can really weaponize. Uh, obviously, we've seen that more and more over the years. People identify something and then they figure out how to weaponize it. Uh, we've done it with our legal system, lawfare. There's even a term for it but um, the same thing with social media they're so easy to manipulate us uh, especially when there is so much not just wealth but uh, the power of controlling information that is uh, is now in, in, with such a small group of people um, we really have to be careful about that manipulation and you can really get sucked in so being able to take a breath and uh, look at things from a, a more strategic perspective rather than getting sucked into a lot of these rabbit holes a lot of these mm. arguments um, you have to ask yourself, why, you know, is this manipulating me? Is what I'm reading, uh, who, who tweeted this, who posted this, uh, what article is this? What, what, what is it attached to? Who, why would, what is their end game? Why do they want, why do they want me to feel a certain way? Um, but it's, it's that connectivity between uh, those individual people, uh, even different businesses, uh, political parties and and big tech who has a vested interest in some of these things as well. So it's so right. tough these days. So being able to take a breath you know get out on a trail get out on a mountain uh take a breath just just breathe yeah breathe in that fresh air look at those views um and uh and yeah it just it just really helps lend perspective to things and of course studying studying history as well so all of those things oh, i don't think it's too healthy to be constantly uh, connected to people who want to divide especially if you're not aware that you're being manipulated the first part is that awareness and the second part is hey putting it down taking a breath and uh, maybe getting back in the pages of a good book. Yeah, uh, it, it, you could you could actually start uh, if you if you haven't started this series, you could start with the terminal list, right? There we go. There we go. <laughs> There's the book. There's the book. So your earliest memory, the Iranian hostage crisis. What do you remember? Yeah, so I remember being at school. I was in uh, went to Catholic school for my first three years for uh, first, second, and third grade. And uh, I remember them taking us out of school and uh, walking us to the uh, the church and um, and them talking about it. Um, I remember going home. I remember seeing the news. I remember um, seeing Walter Cronkite talk about it on TV. And I remember the news being on and having him count down those days that uh, Americans had been held hostage. Uh, I remember the newspapers that would show up that would have that had those pictures, those black and white photos wow. of Americans with those uh, blindfolded being let out of that embassy. Uh, so I, I distinctly remember that. And I remember thinking, wait a second, you know, my grandfather served in World War II, so I'd already was aware of that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, that and I've seen these different World War II movies, and I'm like, wait a sec, why, 
like I thought we won that one. What what's going on here? Why are we letting these American citizens be held hostage halfway across the world? I distinctly remember that, and then I remember Desert One. I remember the the photographs of uh, of Desert One um, that came across. I remember, uh, and I, I distinctly remember that. I know I knew even back then that uh, hey, this is what you're going to devote your life to. This is going to be um, your your enemy going forward. Um, and of course, then that was just compounded by uh, seeing Newsweek and Time Magazine show up at our house with uh, uh, TWA 847 hijacking or the, the Marine barracks bombing. Uh, way later, of course, I'm a lot older by the time uh, Pan Am 103 happens, but uh, there was a series of terrorist events in the 80s that I was quite aware yeah. of because I knew the path that I was on um, and I was already studying warfare and terrorism and insurgencies and that sort of thing. So uh, so those are some of my, my earliest memories that really... Uh, uh, you know, cemented me on that path. That was a that was part of that calling, um, and uh, it was kind of like, hey, your country is under attack. Your way of life is under attack, and it is your job as a citizen of this country to stand up and uh, and do what you can to defend it. So, um, I just never let go of that. You are married to Faith. That's right. How did you guys meet? Yeah, so we met a long time ago in college, and. Uh, uh, yeah, she's been with me for all of this uh, insanity and dealt with, I mean, <laughs> yeah. when, when we go down range, you know, the SEAL teams, you are there next to your best friends. You're there with your teammates. You are solely focused on the task at hand. You are solely focused on that mission. You're building target packages. You're heading out at night, either in gun trucks or in helicopters or whatever it might be uh, to go uh to go capture or kill somebody. And uh, if you capture them, you bring them back and exploit them for intelligence and uh, exploit all the other things that you grabbed off that target. And uh, then maybe you launch again that night, or maybe you use it to continue to develop other target packages and wait for a trigger to go hit somebody else. So that's what you're focused mm. on. You're not focused on paying a bill. You're not focused on uh, fixing a leaky faucet. Right. You're none of that stuff. And so she's dealing with all of that. All the wives are back at home dealing with all of that. Yeah, I can't imagine being a military spouse, you guys have beautiful children together, and I can't imagine just that that time apart having no idea what kind of danger the love of your life is is possibly facing at any minute. That is yeah. a special kind of strength in of itself. It certainly is. And then, of course, uh, you know, for a lot of the war, uh, when things were very dynamic, you'd see something on the news. And that little ticker across the bottom of the news would say something oh. like hey, eight, uh, eight soldiers, you know, killed in Iraq. Um, oh, and, no, okay. Yeah. So the, okay, that's that's part, and then you know an hour later it says um, uh, you know eight special operations soldiers uh, you know went down in a helicopter. Okay, special operation. Now getting closer, and then it comes down to uh, you know seals or army special forces or whatever it might be. But you know it starts off at this level. Uh, you know it could be anybody, and then slowly it whittles down. And that's not just for seals. That's for anybody. Uh, in any spouse that's left at home is seeing that happen, and then you're wondering about that knock at the door um and it's uh yeah it takes a strong person to put up with that year after year after year deployment after deployment after deployment so uh, my hat is off to all of those who uh who really are fighting that battle on the home front yeah my goodness i can't imagine i love your answers they're so thoughtful and so detailed on five possessions that if you could only keep five possessions what would they be Take us through these. Um, so an old gun that your dad gave you? 
Yep. So I think that's the the thirty thirty or the uh, yep. old twenty two or Colt Woodsman that uh, that he picked up back in uh, <laughs> in the fifties. I think at a at a pawn shop in California. I think you could walk out as like a twelve year old uh, with, with these things back then. <laughs> with uh, you know probably for about twenty bucks and, uh, without showing any sort of ID or anything. Um, and uh, so yeah, I still have those today. <laughs> so those are uh, those are quite special. Gotcha. The tomahawk that was given to you. Um, at your military retirement by uh, Daniel Winkler. Yeah. That sounds yeah, like fun. Uh, yeah, it's on the wall behind me in my office right now, and I gave my kids each one of my retirements. So I called them up, and I gave them four things. I gave them a, uh, a Bible with their name on it. I gave them a old nautical compass, and I gave them those and said, hey, these are, these are to guide you. And then I gave them a leather-bound copy of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, and oh. so these are our natural rights enshrined in these documents. And then I handed them a tomahawk that has their name on it. And I said, and here's the means to defend them. So that's the four things that, uh, that the kids got. So, uh, tomahawks are, or have always been special to me. How cool is that? Those are some, man, you're a great gift giver. I tell you that. <laughs> uh, let's see. A 1911 pistol built by Larry Vickers. Wow. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Larry's uh, amazing guy. He's uh, a former Army Special Forces, uh, Army Delta Force, and he is uh, yeah, in the tactical training community. And one of the guys that I reach out to when I'm doing research for my novels on the firearm front, because um, he is just a wealth of knowledge. He has a great series of books called Vickers Guides, which are coffee table books that have amazing photographs by James Ripley and then Larry Wright and it's just incredible stuff. So uh, he doesn't typically build 1911s anymore. He was the first Army Special Forces uh, you know, gunsmith that uh, hit a, this, this certain level in a gill. Anyway, it's just an amazing guy. Um, and he built one for me. So it was quite, uh, it was quite special. That is super cool. Awesome. Um, understandable, you would want to take all of your family photos. And I have to tell you, this is super cool as well. A typewriter that Hemingway used to write a movable feast you have that that is really awesome man i do a uh, a fan got that for me it went up for auction in uh january <laughs> february of 2020 so i'm probably lucky that it went up for auction before the COVID stuff hit but uh, uh-huh. they'd seen me posting stuff about about hemingway and and uh they got some uh, a sense from reading my novels particularly the africa stuff that i write about in true believer the second second novel um and they wanted to gift it to me they wanted it to go to somebody that uh that would appreciate it so yeah, this wow. typewriter showed up, and uh, it was just it was just insane. So it's uh, it's here right now with me. And uh, have you ever yeah. typed on it? Have you ever used it? I did. I <laughs> typed a uh, I typed a sentence on it that I think I'll, I'll keep secret for now because I might like do some sort of a you know a giveaway with that piece of paper that I that I typed oh. it on and ask people like what they think my first uh, sentence typed on it is. But uh, I don't want to replace the. I'm not sure like when the um, the ribbon was replaced last, uh, and I don't know if I want to replace it or not. But if sure. I do, I'll keep the old one. If I replace it, then I might do something where I, you know, type some special letters up on it or, or something like that. But um, in the how prefer, cool is that? In the interim, it is just uh, just right here with me. So, if you want to uh, keep an eye out for that um, that piece of paper or that sentence that he typed up, uh, you know, however he's gonna use it, y'all, uh, keep an eye on jackcar.com. Or, I'm sorry, good grief, look at that! I just screwed that up. I know, it's official, tough. It's tough. That guy in the new car. Yeah, yeah. See, that's what what you gotta do is 
well, maybe you shouldn't do this, but maybe you call Jack Carr, this yeah. this, this guy that, that has that website, and just tell him who he's dealing with on the other end <laughs> and some of the special skills that you've developed over the year. No, uh, he needs to give you that domain. But uh, the easiest thing to do would just be to bookmark officialjackcar.com and uh, keep an eye there for any kind of uh, however you're going to use that uh, Hemingway thing going forward. But on yeah. social media, uh, at Jack Carr USA, and remind me now that's going to be Facebook, Twitter, and most definitely Instagram, where you're located, uh, where you're doing the most uh, damage, right? That's right. That's right. And uh, people can sign up for the newsletter too. They'll get little alerts here and there, or there's some some giveaways I do throughout the year with some of these different companies that uh, whose gear I've used for a long time, or that I mentioned in the novels. And uh, I post to the blog fairly regularly on my website. Like yesterday, I posted about the um, uh, the series for Amazon and posted some pictures and answered some questions. I think there's ten different questions on there that I answered that uh, uh, that I get asked a lot about uh, the series. So put that up on the blog so people can get me there, and then they can. Listen to that Danger Close podcast, which comes out every Wednesday on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on my YouTube channel. Okay. Uh, tell us the name of that podcast one more time. It's called Danger Close, Beyond the Books Danger with Jack Close. Carr. Yep, yep. I, I love a, it. Yeah, something that uh, authors couldn't have done 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but uh, I can do it today and answer some of those questions or explore some of those questions that might be better suited for a long-form conversation rather than a yeah. one-sentence response and on social this- channels. This is perfect. This goes brings it full circle, Jack. This goes right back to where we started our conversation, talking about the difference between growing up in the 80s and 90s and growing up today. There are so, so many more things that we have access to, such as podcasts, people listening to this right now, people going to check out Danger Close. I mean, all of these avenues that we didn't have available to us, and yet, like you said... I mean, there's a distraction level there that is, I mean, it is a, it is a, it's a very difficult thing to try to balance life these days. It certainly is. That's why it's so important who you follow, why you follow them, who your kids follow, why they follow them, because um, you only have so much bandwidth. So choose wisely. And that is a great way to wrap this up. You only have so much bandwidth. Choose wisely. Jack Carr, I can't wish you enough success i'm so excited for you it was great getting to know you today man and i hope we can definitely do this again in the future oh thank you so much for having me on and uh, looking forward to doing it again sometime it was so great getting to know jack carr i really appreciated the time he was able to make for us here for at the mic next week a former colleague of mine rachel bonilla she's gonna sit down have a fun chat with us she works closely with national talk host dana lash Rachel's going to tell us how she got into the world of talk radio, what it was like growing up in Florida. That's going to be coming up a week from now. Until then, I hope you'll stop by at themikeshow.com. Peruse the archives. Look for any episodes maybe you've missed along the way. Please do share this secret with your friends at the mic. Uh, anybody you know who may want to listen to some good conversation. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of At The Mic, and thank you so much for your generous donations to the cause that keep this podcast going. You guys are so awesome. I cannot thank you enough for all of your help with that. So until next week, go be free, and thank you for listening to At The Mic. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemicshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.